Well, if you keep that verse in front of you or the page in front of you, we're thinking particularly about verse 20. Verse 20. We're asking the question, what lies at the heart of the Bible? What lies at the heart of Christianity? Is the Bible's message, try harder? You've got to be better. Is the Bible's message, I think if we went out and did a survey in the streets of Letterkenny and said, what is the Bible's message? People would say, be good, be kind. Or they might say, oh God is an angry God and we should be afraid. They might say that. But at the heart of the Bible and at the heart of Christianity is an astonishing truth, a truth so powerful that if we believe it, it will change us. Because truth can do that. People who start to believe in freedom and start to live by it can bring down an entire system. Some of us are old enough to have lived in the 80s and the 90s and seen the fall of the Iron Curtain and the fall of communism. It happened in Romania where Robert and his, his family are from. And, and what a, a wonderful transformation it brought because truth is powerful and truth is captivating. And the more powerful it is and the deeper it goes into our hearts and the more it transforms us. And there is no deeper truth than this truth that we're looking at this morning. And it's a truth that we need to know. And it's a truth that we need to take deep into our hearts. And even if you've been a Christian for years, here's a truth to still be amazed at. What is it? Well, Paul wrote it down 2,000 years ago because I believe he was completely overwhelmed by it. There it is. It's not even the whole of verse 20. It's the last half of verse 20. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And if we want to understand what the Bible's about, what Christianity is about, what New Life Fellowship is about, what Robert and Chloe are, have come to in coming to Jesus Christ, here it is in a single sentence. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who can say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And there's two things I want us to see uh, this morning. One now, uh, and then a second point briefly after Robert and Chloe's baptism. So first of all, there's an astonishing truth. An astonishing Astonishing truth. This sentence is so simple that all of the children can understand it. It's made up of words, nearly all of them are only one syllable. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's so simple that a child could understand it. And it's so rich that a philosopher could think about it for decades and not get to the bottom of it. 
It's like a rose. And we would destroy it if we tried to take it apart. So I want to take this verse and turn it round and look at it and to see some of the things that make it astonishing. Paul is writing to people who live in what today is central Turkey. Like I said a moment ago, he's, he's brought them the good news and then he's traveled on somewhere else and then he's found out that they've turned away from the good news. And if we were to read from the beginning of the letter, we would see and hear his amazement. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he's astonished because these people are giving up the greatest prize in the world. And they are giving it up for a no prize. It's a bit like giving up uh, a a three-month trip to Hawaii for a day at the rubbish dump. And Paul says, I'm astonished. What are you doing? But it's worse than that. It's going to impact them forever. And so he writes to remind them of a most astonishing truth. And let's look at it from, from three different angles. First of all, there's an astonishing person. This truth is astonishing because there is an amazing person involved. It starts with, the Son of God loved me. The Son of God. Now, we're reading this from the Bible and we're not surprised that it speaks about the Son of God. What else would you expect it to do? But that title is not one Paul uses often. He doesn't say Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses those hundreds of times. But he uses this phrase, the Son of God. He only uses it three other times. Why does he pick that? I think there's at least a couple of reasons. One is to show the magnitude, the immensity of this person who shows love. If he had said only Jesus, that would have focused in on the carpenter from Nazareth. Oh, he loved me. Well, that doesn't seem so amazing. If he had said the Lord Jesus Christ, well, it's still focusing in on his humanity. And yes, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. And that's what Paul wants us to see. That this This love, this truth is amazing because it concerns the most amazing being in the universe. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be loved. I had the privilege of conducting Robert and Chloe's wedding and to see up close their their commitment to each other and their love for each other as they took their vows. And we are made to be loved and we flourish when we're loved. But here, this is no human love. This is the love of the most astonishing being in the universe. And that's what we want to get our heads around. God in all his timelessness, in all his eternity, in all his power and majesty and glory, that God, Paul says, who exists as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that God, and specifically God the Son, has loved me. Oh, he knows everything because he's God. 
Oh, we can do anything because He's God. Oh, He is perfect because He's God. Hold that in your head, He says. That, that being has set His love on us. And yes, He detests sin. He hates sin, but we'll come to that in a moment. We, we, that's what's going to make this truth even more amazing. That being who is so far above us and so beyond us, who spoke the world into existence and who hates sin, he's the one who's going to, what's the next phrase? Show love. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? You know, if you could see God the Son, you would be overwhelmed in amazement. He's astonishing in his person. But I think there's another reason why Paul calls him the Son of God. It's to show us that this is true. This is true. And again, we miss this because we are used to thinking of Jesus as the Son of God because that's what the Bible says. But Paul didn't always believe that. Paul hated that truth. Paul was opposed to that truth. He thought Jesus was a, a con man, a liar from Nazareth, who was blaspheming against God. And Paul did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And then he was also a deeply religious man, which was part of the problem. He believed, as all Jews did, that there was God, and God was one, and God was high in heaven, and, and God wouldn't come to earth and God, there was no Son of God. That's not what the Jewish people believed from their Scriptures. And he didn't believe this claim that Jesus was God. And then one day on the road, as he was going actually to hunt down Christians, in all his religious sincerity, as he's going down the road, he is blinded by a light from heaven. And perhaps in this moment he thought, God is going to appear to me and tell me, well done, Paul, for getting rid of this wicked lie. And the voice said, Saul. And Paul, or Saul as he was known then, said, Who are you, Lord? And in that moment, everything changed. Because the voice from heaven that he had just said was Lord and God, that voice said, I am Jesus I am Jesus. And the one that Paul thought was a con man and a liar, he had just said, Who are you, Lord? And this Jesus was God, God the Son. And Paul was condemned from his own lips. And we'll, we'll, we'll pick up that story in a moment. But here, if we want to know, is this true? Is this true? Paul says, yes, it is, because I didn't believe it. I thought it was a lie, and yet I found it to be true. Paul had to be convinced against everything in his head and in his heart and in his history. And so here is the arch-skeptic using this title, Son of God. And if you've got doubts this morning as to, is this just a myth? Is this true? Or maybe... A, if you're a Christian and those doubts are coming to you at times, here's where you can go. The Son of God, Paul calls him. 
the most astonishing person. Then the second thing we want to see is the most, or sorry, an astonished recipient. An astonished recipient. The Son of God loved me. Now come with me back to that road to Damascus. And Paul is traveling on it. And he has just said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Stop for a moment. Paul has this awful whiplash. He thought, maybe God is going to tell me I'm great for defending his honor. And then he realizes, no, no. The Jesus I thought was telling lies and blaspheming is God. And worse than that, we read from 1 Timothy, Paul had beaten and harried and harassed and hunted and arrested and tortured and stoned to death Christians. The followers of this same Jesus. Think of what went through his mind in that moment as he realizes that Jesus is God. You know, I saw a story last week of an Egyptian Muslim. And when he was a a teenager, still at school, he and some friends attacked a Christian in their class and they smashed him to a pulp. They smashed his arms and his legs. They choked him and left him for dead in the African bush. They thought they were doing Mohammed a favor. He hated Christianity with vehemence and intensity. And that was just like Paul. He says in 1 Timothy, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, and there he is in that road, and he must have been thinking, I am about to be destroyed and damned by God forever. And what did we read in 1 Timothy? But I was shown mercy. The Son of God showed me mercy, he says. There's a lovely phrase that he uses in the Greek language. He was engulfed in mercy is the idea. He, he mercied me. I deserve to be judged, but he mercied me instead. What sort of a God is this? A God of intense mercy and grace and compassion. Saul had gone hunting Christians and executing Christians. And he was shown mercy. And you can hear the amazement in Paul's voice. The Son of God loved me. Me. There's something awe-inspiring about it. You know, revenge is said to be sweet, but it is only sweet to fools. The victory of forgiveness is sweeter. That Egyptian Muslim became a Christian. Years later, he was speaking at a conference. The man came up to him and said, Do you remember me? Who do you think it was? It was the one that he had tried to kill all those years before. Now, brothers in Christ, isn't forgiveness, isn't forgiveness amazing? And what an astonishing way this truth is put. 
You know, in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world. Paul writes in another letter that Christ loved the church. But here he drills it right down to me, to the individual. You know, and we need to hear that. For we might think, and rightly so, that we don't deserve God's love. We don't. But Paul didn't. We might say, well, we're not like other Christians. I don't have their gifts. I don't speak. I can't speak the way they do. We might look at ourselves and think that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not, I'm not what I want to be. And Paul would come and put his arm around your shoulder and say, ah, my friend, I was a devil when he loved me. I was a hater when he loved me. I was a butcher when he loved me. And if he can love me, he can love you. And none of us has a past that we're proud of. Here's Paul, a man with blood on his hands. And if he can say, the Son of God loved me, then it doesn't matter what you've done, you can experience this love too. Think of all our failures, all the wrong that we've done. And yet we could say, the Son of God loved me. How? How? Well, Paul says, it's by faith in him. It's by entrusting ourselves to him, as we'll, we'll see in a moment. But you see how this answers another of those big questions. Sometimes we've got questions about, is this all true? But sometimes we've got a question, is it for me? Is it really for me? You know, sometimes somebody gives you a great gift. What do you say? Well, before you even get to say thank you, you say, is this for me? Is it for me? Is it, is it all for me? Is it for me? Paul says, the Son of God loved me. Me, he says. And then we have to turn this, this rose round another, another quarter turn or third of a turn and see the astonishing gift, the astonishing person the astonished recipient and the astonishing gift. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. God gave himself for me, Paul says. On behalf of me, what does it mean? It means there was a price to pay. There is, is Paul on that road to Damascus and he deserves judgment to fall on him. And it's as if the Son pushes him aside and steps under the cloud of judgment and says, I'll give myself for you. The Son of God swapped places with Paul, as it were. And he took Paul's place. And where did he take Paul's place? Well, if you cast your eye to the start of the verse, you'll see where. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. Christ went to the cross so that Paul wouldn't have to. And Christ so identified himself with Paul that Paul says, it's as if I had been there. It's as if the price was fully paid by me. Jesus has paid it for me. He gave himself for me. He exchanged places so that all the punishment that I deserved 
would fall on God the Son. I had the problem. But God says, we will provide the solution. The Son says, I will take the punishment that you deserve. The Father says, I will punish my Son whom I love rather than punish you. And Paul's amazed that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And it's not just that he gave himself at the cross. There was a, a, a colossal giving. He gave himself. He gave up himself for me. He left the glory of heaven. He left the comfort of heaven. And he came to this scrap of a planet. And he lived the life that I ought to have lived under immense pressure. And he didn't sin once. And he says, here, Robert, here, Chloe, you take my life. You have my perfect record. And let me take all that you've done that was wrong. And I'll pay for it. He gave himself fully for us. That's the gift. What an incredible gift. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. And the word give is in the past tense. It's given, it's done, it's dusted, it's finished. And since it was the Son of God who gave, and he gave himself the greatest, well, nothing greater could be given. And so there is nothing more in this universe that could be given to satisfy God. He has his Son. The Son has given himself. And there is nothing to be added. That's why it's good news. The gift is complete. It does everything it says it will do. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It answers the question, is there anything that I have to do? It is finished. There's nothing left to do. The Son of God gave himself. You know, sometimes you get a present that still has work to be done on it. Somebody buys you a painting by numbers kit. And on the box there is this wonderful piece of scenery. You think, oh, I can't wait to put that picture up. And you open the present and there it is, a white page with lots of little numbers that you have to color in. And you think, thank you for the hours that I'm going to have to spend finishing this. But this is not like this gift. It's all done. Everything, the Son of God has given himself. It is the most astonishing gift. And Robert and Chloe, what you've done is to accept his gift. And this little sentence sums up the very heart of your faith. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Remember it. Underline it. Think about it. Turn it round. Marvel at the immensities. The Son of God. Marvel at the contrast, me. Marvel at the generosity. He gave himself for me. I get the impression Paul never got over this. May you not get over it either. For those who have put your trust in Christ, here is a simple sentence to revisit often. It helps us with our doubts. 
It helps us with Satan's accusations. It helps us with unworthiness. It helps us to fight temptation. It gives us motivation to live the Christian life. How could we not live for him who loved us and gave himself for us? Or maybe we need confidence that this salvation is complete. The Son of God has done it. What else could it be? Maybe we need confidence amidst trials. The Son of God loved me. He loved me. And if He loved me then, He loves me now. Oh, and don't forget those two words, for me. They're beautiful words. Don't forget the for me when you're struggling with temptation or trials. Don't forget the for me when you feel like giving up. Don't forget these great words. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. Perhaps you're here this morning or watching online and you know that you're not ready to appear before Jesus Christ. What can you do? Go to Him and say to Him, will you love me? And will you give yourself for me? Will you entrust yourself to Him? Say to Him, will you go to the cross for me? Will you rescue me? And you know what? As you entrust yourself to him, you will find that amazing moment that Paul found on the road to Damascus. That as you look up, as it were, into the face of God, you will not see the face of a judge looking down, but you will see the face of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you'll be amazed with Paul too. What an astonishing truth. You know... Our efforts won't get us there. It takes the Son of God to do it. He had to give Himself. Other religions won't get us there. No Muslim can say Muhammad loved me and gave Himself for me. No Buddhist can say Buddha loved me and gave Himself for me. Or no Hindu, Krishna loved me and gave Himself for me. But those who come to Christ can say in amazement, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's what lies at the heart of Christianity. Amen. Let's stand, if we're able, as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, words, words don't capture the wonder of this verse. It is amazing. It is incredible. And we thank you that you've recorded it for us in such simple language that we can just sit and listen and be amazed by it. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be amazed. We praise you for the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, Press that into our hearts and into our lives. Help us to see how incredible this truth is. Father, help us to see it when we feel rubbish, when we feel worthless, when we feel a failure. Lord, help us to see that through Jesus Christ, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And Father, for those that we know and love, perhaps here or watching or will hear us talking about this verse. Lord, 
those we love that don't know you as their Savior. Lord, would you open their eyes to see that you are who you say you are and that one day they will stand before you and that they will either look into the face of the judge of all the earth or they will look into the face of the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them. And Lord, may they come like Paul to put their trust in the Son of God now. Now, Lord God. And we thank you that Robert and Chloe can say this. And we pray that as they come to their baptism now, that you would underline in their hearts and minds this rich, beautiful, and stunning truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to ask the elders and Robert and Chloe uh, to come forward. But for all of us, just to, to refresh our memories, and for the children, I want to say what I say at nearly every baptism. At a baptism, you're listening for something and you're watching for something. Okay? That's for all of us, not just the children. Baptism tells us two things. It says, you belong God is saying you belong to me because at a baptism, and you've got to listen for this one, Robert and Chloe are going to be baptized into the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God says, I'm putting my name on you the same way you boys and girls put your name on your school bags or your copy book at school to say, this is mine, or your ruler or your pencil case. And God is saying, he wants Robert and Chloe to be reminded, you belong to me. You're mine. You're mine. And so listen, listen for that one. And then watch, because God is also saying, you've been washed. You've been washed. Now, we've got a picture in baptism. The water is a reminder to us of how God has washed our sins away. The water doesn't do it, but it's a picture. It's a reminder that God has washed our sins away. Water cleans, and baptism is a picture of the cleaning that God brings. And so I want you to remember those two things. Baptism is a picture of washing and a picture of belonging, but it's also a promise. It's a promise that God washes those who put their trust in Him and washes them clean of all the stains. That's what Paul found. And oh boy, he, his hands were stained. He described himself in First Timothy as the worst of sinners. And baptism is a promise that those who come to Jesus Christ belong, belong in God's family. And so that's why it's right today that as Robert and Chloe come to their baptism, they're also joining the family of God in this fellowship here in Letterkenny. And so I'm going to ask uh, the elders uh, and Robert and Chloe to come and to join me at the front uh, here. Um, so Robert and Chloe are going to take their vows, uh, their vows uh, are declarations of their faith in Jesus Christ, their trusting of his word, their trusting of his salvation, and that they're seeking to live according to his word. So I'm, I'll ask you uh, the question and then you can both reply. Um, do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the Word of God and the only infallible, flawless rule of faith 
and practice. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? There's that lovely phrase. The only Redeemer of men that is supreme in everything, in church and in state, and in dependence on God's grace, do you take Him as your Savior and Lord? Do you promise by divine grace to show a teachable and submissive spirit to the teaching of Holy Scripture as set out in the testimony of this church? Do you promise that by the help of the Holy Spirit you will endeavor to live a life consistent with your profession? And to the members of New Life Fellowship, you have a vow to take as well. And I want you to reply with, we do. Do you promise to pray for these young Christians and to seek by example and speech to encourage them to walk in the ways of the Lord? And I'm going to ask the congregation to stand as they come to God in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, how we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for all he did in his life for Robert and Chloe. We thank you for all he did in his death for Robert and Chloe. And we thank you for all he's doing now as he has risen and reigns from heaven for Robert and for Chloe. We thank you for the homes that you brought them into this world in. We thank you for their parents, for Robert's parents, Victor and Janina, and for Chloe's parents, Jim and Marie. We thank you for all that they have contributed to the lives of Robert and Chloe growing up. And we pray that you would pour out your blessing on them and that they would know that wonderful richness of saying, the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. Father, we thank you for what you've done in Robert and Chloe's lives to bring them to this point where they have put their trust in Christ. We thank you for guiding them and and seeing that you were the great creator of the world and that life was to be lived your way, that that was the way it is to be. And then in finding out that Jesus, that the God who made the universe stepped into time and history and came and gave himself on the cross for them so that they could not only have a king but have a saviour. We thank you for that moment that you brought them to. And Father, we thank you for baptism. This picture and a promise. A picture of washing and a picture of belonging. And a guarantee of forgiveness and a guarantee of belonging. And we pray that you'd be present here today and to pour out your blessings on Robert and on Chloe. Robert. You have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. The life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Robert, Raduta, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Chloe, 
You too have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. The life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Chloe Raduta, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. O Lord God, would you enable this young couple to keep these vows they have made? Will you bless them and the child in Chloe's womb? We thank you for your mercy and goodness to them. And may they know that mercy and grace all the days of their lives, extending not just to one generation, but as you promised, to thousands of generations. Lord God, we pray. And we ask that you would help us as members of this church to fulfill and to keep our vow for them too. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the elders and the members of the church, welcome you into the membership of New Life Fellowship. The Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you. I want to, just as we finish, to address uh, all of us, but in, uh, in particular some words to Robert and Chloe. I said there were two points I wanted to make, uh, and rest assured the second is much briefer than the first. I want us to point, I want to, point us to the opening lines of this verse. Because this is the second thing I want to say is this is a transforming truth. All, all great truths change us. And this truth is the greatest truth and changes us. And I want to unpack two things that Paul says here that will help you, Robert and Chloe, live the Christian life and will help others to understand what has happened to you. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the two things I want to finish off with this morning, the first is this, the old you is gone. The old you is gone. That's what Paul's saying. If people had come looking for the old Paul or Saul as they'd been known, the one who persecuted Christians, and they came and said, where's Saul? We've got a group of Christians. Let's go and hassle them and harry them and arrest them. Paul would say, I'm not here anymore. That Paul is gone. I have been crucified with Christ. And that Paul you're looking for no longer lives. And you need to know this truth, Robert and Chloe, because sometimes guilt will come up in your memories. And you will feel terrible as a Christian. You think, all oh, those things I did, I shouldn't have done them. You need to say, that's been dealt with at the cross. That's been paid for. That's been crucified. That guilt was done away with. The guilty me was crucified when Jesus was crucified. He took my place, my guilt, my punishment. It's gone. It's gone. And you also need to know it when temptation arises. You say to yourself, I don't live like that anymore. I don't live like that anymore. You know, there's an old preacher called Augustine, lived in 
um, the top part of Africa in the 400s. And before he became a Christian, he had a mistress. And after he became a Christian, his mistress came looking for him and fluttering her eyelids and speaking suggestively. And Augustine turned away from her and she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turned and said, but it is not I. It's not I. And that's it. There was an old Robert and an old Chloe. They may have been very nice people on a horizontal level, but there were still attitudes and priorities uh, that belonged to that way of life where you put your ways first. And now the Son of God is to come first. And so there's a saying, no. A saying, no, that's not me anymore. The old you is gone, but there's a new you. The new that you were always made to be. That's what God does for us. He's like an artist recovering a work of art that was vandalized. And he comes to restore it. And he's doing that in you. And so the old you is gone. But the new you is growing. And how does it grow? Yes, you've got new thoughts, new priorities, new words, new emotions, new actions. It's to be seen in everything. And it can seem hard. Daunting. But listen to the verse. Here's the kindness of God. Oh, what a kind God. You know, people who are merely religious think that God says, do this, do this, do this, and then I might accept you. God says, no, no, no. I've done what needs to be done on the cross out of love for you. And not only do I rescue you from that, but I change you now. And he helps us to live. He helps us to live. Look at what the verse says. But Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. What sort of an inventor could you be, uh, Robert, if Leonardo da Vinci's spirit lived in you? What sort of A musician could we be if the spirit of Bach or Mozart lived in us? The spirit of Christ lives in the Christian to help you to live, to help you to live the Christian life. Helping you to be a husband and a mother and a wife and a father. Helping you to be a friend, a son, a daughter. Making you the richest you can be in all of that. And as surely as the waters of baptism were poured on you, the Lord has poured out His Holy Spirit on you. And through Him, Christ lives in you to help you to live for Him. Christ lives in you. The life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you.